we're the world's leaders in crisps. We're amazing so at crisps, can't have yeah. Spain coming over here. <laughs> on our patch. Yeah. We've got, <laughs> we got, we got our own truffles. Yeah, I mean, honestly, we're supposed to do this once we've started the podcast. We'll have to edit this bit in. <clears throat> Hello and welcome to Business Without Bullshit. A sideways look at modern business and some might say the antidote to your typical business podcast. I wouldn't. But you decide. Uh, I'm Andy Ori, and alongside me is Pippa Sturd. Oh, hi, Andy. I'm still crunching. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm eating crisps. Uh, today we are joined by Daniel Featherstone. Daniel is founder of Made for Drink. We like the title already, Daniel. Thank you. Simple, authentic, and utterly delicious snacks to be enjoyed with a drink. Major listings include the Fat Duck, Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Fortnum's, as well as partnerships with Laurent, Perrier, English Heritage, and Molson Coors. Uh, made for Drink, we're also winner of the ED Sustainability Leadership Award in 2022. Daniel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. We were supposed to wait for the podcast to begin, Sorry. as our producer was quite clearer. <laughs> With us, but we have already opened up. These crisps are genuinely, yeah, absolutely yeah, fucking the, delicious. There's the English truffle <laughs> potato crisps, which for people who don't like truffle, probably not your thing. But if definitely you, not. If, if you if, don't like truffle, don't go in there. They are really good. They're kind of salty and truffly, and like, mm, yeah, good. Yep. Oh yeah, all about delicious. Mm. Um, which one are you most proud of? Now we've opened them, we're skipping on um, the normal chat. My the one I'm most proud of is our Tritzo thins. So that was my, that was the first product. That was the one I obsessed over basically when I was like, I don't know when I had the idea of the, this kind of business and thought of something, wanted to try something a bit different. Chorizo, very Spanish. Yeah, so my whole idea behind my business was food that goes great with drink and basically looking at, my inspiration really comes from different drinking cultures around the world and obviously Spanish tapas and, but you can't just chop up to it so put it in a bag. And so actually kind of figured out this way of gently roasting it to give it some texture whilst retaining it. The kind Delicious. of flavour of it. And and you're in places like the Fat Duck, so presumably they put it out with the drinks beforehand. Yeah, so we're in the Fat Duck group, so it's not in the Fat Duck restaurant, but it's in the Heinz Heads. The, the and, Heinz Head yeah, must the have Heinz it Head. in the bar. Yeah, Sorry, Heinz that's Head. the Fat Duck's pub. Yeah, the Fat Duck's pub. And then also in the um, they're served in the Mandarin Oriental Hotel, which is the hotel that's got uh, dinner by Heston um, yeah. in the base. So that's you, in Hong Kong. Oh, the one in London. The one in London, yeah. So if you, if you go to the bar there and you... Get a cocktail, you're served a little portion of English truffle crisps, actually. I've been to that. It's called dinner. That's right. Dinner by Heston, yeah. Yeah, I mean, a brave man to start any manufacturing business. What's uh, what's keeping Daniel up at night at the moment, would you say? The, the main thing, actually, I suppose, it's the same with any uh, founder, is that sense of self-doubt. I'm not sure every founder has that sense of self-doubt. Do you not think? I, th <laughs> I think that sense Pretty of... confident about that one. Every human does. Yeah, nighttime when you're in bed though, I think that thing that's keeping you up at night is, it. I, I can only articulate it as self-doubt, but I found that it's, uh, that seems to be intrinsically linked to the cash in my bank. Um, yeah. Over the, over the last seven years since we've been running this business, whenever I've had real like down moments, I suppose, in my own mind, it seems to be mostly linked to the fact that I haven't got much money in the bank. And it's an inherent problem with manufacturing that if you're growing, you always need more money now to produce for the future yeah. that you're not going to get until that you need you need credit, basically. Yeah, yeah. How do you resolve that yourselves? Um, so that's been a massive journey, a learning curve over the last seven years. So I, I was an established manufacturer, so that's that's how I started the business for the first five and a half years. We were a manufacturer. Oh, you didn't go to a third-party crisp expert no. or anything. You said, we're going to do it So ourselves. were you manufacturing for others, like no, for I other people? I, I've got a, th a few learnings I've got with hindsight. I wish I had done that because we needed that factory full at like full tilt 90% of the time. And sometimes we found that we were at 30% full. So wait a second, you started this business, found a premises, bought some equipment, started manufacturing your own products. In short, yes. I, start, I started on the side though. Uh, you call it a side hustle now, right? When I've got I've got my listing with the Fat Duck Group, and I've got my Village Hall license for manufacturing, which is quite an unusual step. But I used to basically hire the Village Hall out on a Thursday evening, through to Friday, cook on, you know, take my Fridays off as a holiday, cook through Thursday night. So you you had a job on the. I didn't know the... I could use my Village Hall for whatever I wanted. Can I? Yeah, as long as you um, clean up. Yeah, basically you've got to have it. It's got a it's got a hazard. It's a hazards and critical control points, and a link to that is a food management system. And so as long as you've got appropriate premises that has all the right things in place and you put pest control in there and you do all the other the correct things, then there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to manufacture in 
a really good facility. Like so this was in this was in Twyford, was in, it? Near you got you know where Rawthorns and Lawrence is. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So that village hall is oh. where I started it. Yeah. Right in the home counties. <laughs> right then. in the home counties. Yeah. And uh, I don't know. It was great fun. Like it was hard work, but it was amazing. I loved it. Like I got my I said I got my first customer with Heston's Pubs. I was playing the Pines Head and the Crown. Used to hire a village hall out on a Thursday night through to Friday. My dad and my mum and my wife and. Taking, you know, I'd be the one making there, the chorizo, making the chorizo thins, and another product that chorizo, yeah, that doesn't exist anymore, which was called our duck fritons, which is a crispy duck skin. We did listed that two years ago when we closed our big manufacturing site down. So, where were you in the village hall? How did we get to the big one? So, village hall, uh, working full time, got about three, four months in. We got picked up by the Fat Duck, Fortnum's, and Rick Stein. Hang on, what did you do before this? Then? I worked, used to work at Walker's Crisps. Oh, right. So you had a background in Had crisps. a background in snacks. Yeah. What, is that owned by Pepsi? That's owned by PepsiCo, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Nice British brand. Nice British brand. <laughs> <laughs> I love working there, actually. So you were in a village hall. Yep. Everybody mucking in at the weekends. Yep. What happened to make you take that step to go from there to full-time? It was when I got the listing in Fortnum's and they basically asked us, you know, can we be your exclusive um, resale, can we launch you as an exclusive resale um, partner? It was the first time I had like rate of sale kind of targets mm. to hit with the fat, you know, with the fat duck group and Rick Steins, they were just enjoying the fact they were yeah. just liking it and just making it and selling it and what have you. Whereas Fortnum's kind of said, look, if you can sell 15 packs a week, we're going to be happy. And I remember thinking I'm going to absolutely smash that. And so yeah. I just went in every other every other Saturday, I'd go in, sample the whole day, and I'd rate sale. I mean, we're hitting like 150 packs a week. I mean, 15 doesn't feel like a no, lot, right? But, it, but it's about right for most retail, for most department products. Department stores too. There's a surprising thing if you don't already know. Is department stores don't sell that much stuff. You know, you go in thinking, right, this is it. We're in yeah, Portland's, yeah. we're off. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, I mean, you know, every yeah. other day a pack of crisps walks off that shelf, you know what yeah. I mean? It's, yeah, exactly. It's, but if you're there sampling, that's why you end up having to put man lady power in. It was just me, I, I, was, I went in and I just wanted, I just sold it. And yeah, so we were hitting that 150 packs a week. It made it famous with that, with the buyers, you know. But there's a passion here. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And you, and it's and it's and that's when you kind of really figure out if you're you're in love with what you're doing, right? Man, I just I just loved it. I, was, I literally was there first thing in Fortnum's on that Saturday, and I, you know, finish up last thing at night, and just buzzing from people just buying my products and talking mm. to me about it, and and you kind of listen and learn. I mean, when I first launched the business, it was called the Artisan Food Company, made for drink, because I thought I don't know, I don't know why I thought that it was a good name, but it was quite a long name. It's a long it? name, and nobody really heard what I was saying to them, apart from when I said, "Oh, it's great with a glass of Rioja." And they're like, oh, sorry, go again. And I was like, oh, they, I was like, oh this is brilliant with a glass of Rioja. And um, and that's, I was like, right, made for drink. That's what it yeah. is. And I love the like the beat of the name. And yeah, and again, just went out and bought the website. And and it just it just grew from there. Does it, I mean, in this modern age of yeah. Britain, is that just any drink? Or is it is the select suggestion that it used to be drink means alcohol? Make a suggestion, yeah. So on, my, on all of our products, we have suggestions. So... Um, you know, it's made for Rioja, it's great with beer. It's not bad with a cup of tea. I'm great with a cup of tea. <laughs> it's just more for fun, really, actually. And and it was part of that conversation at the, the, at the beginning. It's one of the things, actually, I do I do want to move our branding forward a little bit, actually. You're also finding it, you know? Yeah. It's like uh, the evolution of the Nike swoosh. It's like, you know, these are steps towards... Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's not just establishing your brand, it's sort of getting down to the... What is working? I mean, the great thing about sampling is you would have got a lot of feedback. Loose. You would have just stood, stood there yeah. saying, oh, they quite like this, but they don't like the packaging or whatever it is, yeah. you know. I reckon I've I reckon I've sampled maybe 70,000 people now. Like, gen, wow. gen, generally, I'd, I'd go, I'd, I'd sit in Waitrose stores, you know, if I've got to do sampling, I'll do it in Waitrose stores, I'll sell our products at, I don't know, events like Pub in the Park. And, and I think it's the only way that I've got really to... I don't hear what people think. And, well, it's invaluable data, right? Yeah. Would you have a glass of wine for them when you sample, if you're made for drinks? Some, some, sometimes, yeah. Like, I have done that. Um, it just gets a bit... Expensive? <laughs> it gets a bit, no, it just gets full on. Yeah. But amount of companies we've got that would love to, like, supply, you know, offer to supply us with beer and wine. Oh, really? It's just when you've got, like, 10 people deep. Well, it, it confuses the conversation. It's like, as an accountant, if I offer to raise money, all they can hear is raising money. I can imagine the queue being like, he's got free alcohol. Yeah, yeah. And he's giving yeah. out crisps. Yeah. You know, it's so it's funny. Like, you have to. It's funny that conversation with um with stuff. I remember when we first launched, we were doing this um, crispy duck skin. It's absolutely delicious. It's, 
If you're ever in the south of France, it's called Friton de Canard, and it's it's just crispy duck. That sounds delicious. And obviously, we were buying free-range duck skin and making this product, and our byproduct was duck fat. And I thought, oh, what genius idea to make to sell duck fat on the side. Yeah. It was the byproduct of what? Because as soon as you roast the skin, all that all the fat, fat comes, comes out. Ah, okay. And so I was, I was the only producer of free-range duck fat in the UK, and I thought, oh, what a great idea. And People I'll, need it for their potatoes. Yeah, yeah, and I call it Spud Turb, and I had this great brand. And then you ca- then that's when you realise that you're confusing the conversation. So, like, I'll be going in selling selling our snacks, and then I'll be like, do you want to buy some duck fat? And they're like, sorry, what, what, are, you, what, what are you on about? And I'm like, yeah. oh, don't worry. Like, and actually, you have these great ideas in business, I think, sometimes, but... It's an entirely different aisle. It's a totally different aisle. It's totally different. You're talking... I'm talking to somebody about eat, you know, eating something delicious while they're having a drink, and then I'm suddenly bringing this idea of duck fat to roast potatoes in. And, duck fat. Well, you get that emotion... They get emotionally confused. Totally. We have this sort of... Uh, a, a very clever lady from New York who was the sort of Don um, Sandy Burroughs. Big up, Sandy. He's come on the podcast. But... Um, she, she's, you know, was a huge distributor of cosmetics, but I still remember her explaining to me, you know, when people buy something, they say to themselves, I want some crisps. Yeah. And then they go and pick up the packet and the packet, whatever it says to them, it has to fit with what they want. So if it starts talking about, they also sell duck fat, you know, or something, yeah. you get confused. You think, totally. no, no, I, I don't want that. Yeah. I want, I want crisps. Yeah. You know, I don't know what that was. That was weird. You know, so I can imagine the people being like, oh, I don't actually want to buy this product yeah. anymore. I don't know what you are anymore. And, and this is like meetings with like, you know, proper like buyers from retail and what have you. And I, I thought I thought they would love that concept of it, it, it yeah. just doesn't work. So that that was quickly shelved. But I think yeah, it's just that that idea of sampling and, and, and talking and listening to people and it means you can then adapt and change and what have you. I've got this image of you now at your home when your mates come around. You want some duck fat, mate? You, you good <laughs> on the duck? <laughs> take a kilo. Take two kilos. <laughs> like, listen, Dan, you know, yeah, I could imagine My it. sister would absolutely love you. She's always looking for duck fat. <laughs> Who wants duck fat potatoes? Oh, yeah. fucking hell, every, 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 every employee used to give them a massive kilner jar and be like, just go fill it up every week. <laughs> Honestly. Yeah, what's the plan? What's your long-term plan here? Um, I was thinking about that. I had, How many of you are there at the moment? Uh, it's five now. At our peak, we probably had 13 people um, when we were manufacturing. So we closed our manufacturing site down. In, oh, sorry, this is important. So you you, yeah. you, you you built up the manufacturing and then the you ended up outsourcing. Yeah. So October, when was it? October 2022, we closed our manufacturing site down. Because that's what most people do. They go to a contract manufacturer yeah. and then they have all the problems of minimum quantities and BS and stuff yeah, like yeah, this. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I guess in some ways you got into the industry, learned a lot about how to make them. Yeah. And so in some ways, and then got to a point where you had a minimum quantity to take a contractor. But why did you close it? What was the... Um, to the, your initial point, which was, um, I remember getting to this situation where we were like, well, we need to raise some money, we need to raise investment, and um, to, like, to, to take this business forward. And if we're doing it for to scale up our manufacturing to what we want it to be and need it to be, I think we needed, I can't remember what it was, it was like, we needed two million quid and we probably had to raise like two million every, like quite yeah. often actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. just to keep ahead of, just the capital input you have to put in um, to everything. Or I thought, actually, do you know what, if I could raise 600 grand and where where the business is really starting to grow and where I'm getting a lot of traction is around the products we're making and this sense of made for drink and, and the brand that we're building and that excitement. And that's a bit, I'm, really excited mm. about is feeding people like I love that I love people coming over to my house I love feeding people and that's the buzz that I get from my my, my business my brand and um, manufacturing and then taking on own label contract manufacturing I would just become a, a factory owner and mm. and you start to and that starts to take away from what I was really where I really where I wanted this business to grow and how I wanted to grow it it was there were two different things actually and I was really I was really nervous about it because that, it was part of my big selling pitch over the last five years because I suppose it allowed me to talk passionately to key buyers and what have you about our business and the fact that we made it, it was ours, I bought, the, you know, I'm going to Devon, I'm buying the ducks, I'm bringing this in, I'm doing what have you. And isn't it great on your shelf? And I remember I had a meeting with my um, our buyer from Waitrose, it came up, I mean, Waitrose are a brilliant business, but they, they are the only, one of the only uh, retailers we've, yeah, only buying teams that we have that come out and work with us in our factories. Yep. And David came out, who's my buyer, he came out. Oh, interesting. They come and see how you're doing. Yeah, come into the kitchens and do things and get involved. And yeah, it was really, it was brilliant. Snack. Snack and what have you, yeah. And um, I remember saying to David, I was like, I'm going to close this place down so we can grow. And he was like, 
Sounds like a great idea. I think that's yeah, right. Well. And I was like, okay, cool, right, let's do it. Yeah, okay, because you thought you might go, no. <laughs> yeah, let's close it up. Let's go. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's part of growing up. Yeah, it is, yeah. And they're thinking, great, then we can get scale. Yes. Because are you building a manufacturing business, which, by yeah. the way, is a nightmare and there's very little margins yeah. in. I mean, it's a pretty tough world out yeah. there, manufacturing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I can imagine it being... I wonder if David visited you, though, because oh, I like this brand, so it's alcohol and crisps. Yeah, I'll put, <laughs> I'll put that on my visiting. Very important to visit them regularly, you know? Yeah. So you raised money. How did you... I mean, where did you go for money? So we raised under SEIS and then under EIS, EIS lastly. And that was from... Uh, SEIS was from friends and family. Mm -hmm. EIS was from some of those friends who are... Um, in in that kind of investment world, but our biggest investor came from me standing on a stool selling products and grabbed the right person, and they fell in love with it. And fantastic, yeah. So it's a chap called Nigel Ray. So he he was heavily involved in Saracens Rubber Club, famously. But his big investments were like Domino's pizzas and um, Chapel Down Wine and places like that. So he likes the finer things in life. Yeah. <laughs> I remember I won I won this prize and um, it was like the Food Excellence Awards for catering. And the, the award ceremony was at the London Stadium. And um, so I went up to the bloke who gave me, you know, the general manager was for the London Stadium where West Ham train or play. And um, so I thought, I'll go up to him and get a listing, you know. He's just given me an award for the best product. So Yeah, so he must fucking yeah, like it. He must fucking like it, right? And so I went up to him and said, can you know, We'd like to start this, and he's like, "Okay, tell you, tell you what, come over here in like a couple of weeks, and I'll show you around, and we can we can get this listed." We're listing in the stadium. Yeah, in the yeah. stadium. Yeah, this chap called Elliot Moore, good bloke. And then as we're walking around the stadium, he's like, no, "I've got a rugby match coming up. I think it's be really good for the rugby crowds." Oh, completely. Uh, yeah, Saracens Harlequins game. Like, I tell you what, we do. We do a deal where um, I can't remember what it was. It's like you give us twenty percent of the revenue, we will give you the tables, and you just. So basically, and it was on a Saturday, so I got loads of mates from back home in Twyford. We kind of loaded up the van, loads of tables, got them around the whole stadium, mostly in hospitality. And I just said to um, I said to the guys, like, where where are the Saracens? Because it was a Saracens home game. And I thought, I tell you what, I can get a listing in the Saracens stadium as well. But I thought if I can get to know the, I don't know, schmooze with the Saracens people, <laughs> I might be able to get a listing over in the Saracens stadium at some point in the future. So I just said to them, can I stick my, my table outside the Saracens box? So they said, yeah. And so I was just literally grabbing all the Saracens people that are coming out, chatting to them, making friends, got the guy's name of where, you know, who I need to contact. And um, and I just grabbed, grabbed somebody who said, do you want to try the world's best, you know, pub snacks? And he was like, oh yeah, I like small businesses. And I realised he was being ushered through for like, you know, doing talks into different hospitality suites. And so everybody else was like, you can see all the people around him were getting, oh, Damn it, where's this bloke going? Yeah, he... yeah, yeah. Crisps, it's always bloody yeah. crisps. Gave, you know? gave, gave him one. He's like, oh, these are great. We've got business cards. And then, so gave Nigel my business card. And and I thought that was just a nice meeting. I must be Nigel. Oh, that's Nigel Ray that owns. Okay. And um, yeah, and he dropped in me a note on the next week just saying, can you tell me a bit more about your business? Really interesting. You got any duck fat? Got any duck fat? Yeah, I've got loads of duck fat, mate. <laughs> you know, the conversations just got a bit deeper very quickly and then he was like we'd love you to come over and can you come and present to us and you know have you got shares to sell and all that it was just that kind of conversation I love how your business the trick of raising money is to not ask for money you know and, but in your business you've got crisps yeah, and snacks it's like you yeah. know what human resists that just just try a few you know, you know so many of my clients are like we're trying to raise money we're trying to work out who in the industry would be really great or who are the yeah. people that like invest in this kind of thing and then we're trying to work out a friend of theirs that we can maybe get in front of them and you know and it's really hard work and you just rock up to a, a rugby match and happen to get the right person that's but, amazing. Uh, but, but i think it's also about just putting yourself out there a little bit and just, and yeah, I've done that. I said, I've Think I about I've, the mathematics of that. You met 70,000 people. Yeah. It wasn't easy. You worked your ass off yeah. handing out crisps. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I just love the fact that you've got a product that gets, because yeah. if you were selling cucumbers or something, it's like, I've got this amazing cucumber. Do you want a special, no, no cucumbers, you know. I love cucumbers. Actually, I like a cucumber. Yeah, me too. I'd have to I'd have to think of something else, a toilet brush. But same thing with our partnership with Molson Coors though. Um, that came from, a, again, exactly the same thing. 
So he kept 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 coming back to the stand. Anyway, at the end of the you know the end of the day, he bought loads of stuff, and he was like, "I'm actually the managing director at Molson Coors, like to partner with us." And I was like, "Yes." Hang on, maybe what you should do is put your pitch deck in a pack of crisps. Honestly, combo up with you and other business. (laughs) You know, another business. Get them to brand a pack of crisps that says, you know, such and such technology company. They go, "Oh, these are good," and then pull out a business (laughs) miniature business plan. I mean, I've been to so many talks on because I used to go to a load of the come across bread and jam yes yes yeah, so i used to uh, go to a load of let jason do a load of talks in our office and um there were specific talks on how to get in front of buyers in supermarkets yeah. and it's like all about you know you've got to somehow get your product into them so that they try yeah. it because and you have got the perfect product for that because it's kind of quite moorish right yeah and you can make a little occasion right mm. you can basically send somebody a bottle of wine and a couple of packs of stuff and you instantly get what you're where this where the whole thing's trying to go you knew how to place it do you pick you you knew you knew the but i mean you obviously learned this maybe at uh, pepsi or whatever but you place it in the fat duck arguably one of the greatest restaurants in the country yeah, 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 yeah. The, yeah. the posh retailer that everyone loves to tell and they, they shop at i saw some joke about that you know you fortnum's you know these are amazing places so what's the long-term plan? I don't think we covered it. Long-term plan is, is, sim- is simply to make an exceptional business. You know, that's, I started the business to have, um, have a fun way of making a living, really, um, that I felt that I could make, be proud of and feel successful. So that is my personal ambition, to make something exceptional. If I was to answer this to like a, an investor, what have you, I think my, my answer is actually by 2030, we want to build a 20 million turnover business. I do believe there's about half a billion opportunity for in this space for products that are designed to go with drinks. Probably more than that. Yeah, I, I keep doing those numbers and looking at things and looking at stats and what have you. I do reckon it's about half a billion. I, there's, there's no way that I'm going to go for that, get that or what have you. But I do think a premium brand that can kind of like shape that that kind of category could sit around about that 20 million gross revenue mark and put that perspective that's kind of like what Tyrrell's was a few years ago you know mm. as like in terms of its size kettle chips did it first did they as an independent brand or i remember they came in and the bags were half full but they weren't originally but <laughs> you know. the kettle's a kettle's an american business yeah. was it from yeah, day one yeah, yeah so it's, it came in from america so yeah. it's an american brand okay but I, for, for me the, the 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 brand that really has started establishing all that kind of market and snacks with sensations crisps yeah. If you think about it, oh, okay. that like literally went from zero to 100 million. Sensations is part of Walkers. Though, part of Walkers, yeah. yeah, yeah. What were the sensations was just unusual flavours, was it? Was it there... kind of made it acceptable to have it in the evening when you had friends over. As opposed to putting out a bowl of Watsits, you could go, oh, we're being very sophisticated tonight. That's so true. I'm sorry, but don't knock on Watsit. They're amazing Watsits. But you go around, you're expecting the, you know, Parma ham and melon next to that. Yeah, and so that's where Sensations really, like, knocked out of the park. And then you had a few others, but there haven't been that many in snacks, whereas actually you pick an equivalent size category, like like alcohol or beer, you know, beer category. You think about how much innovation and change and everything's been brought through in that biggest muck up I mean are you happy where you are now are you feeling you you look back and think damn it yeah I definitely had a big period of the business where it was just bad the shift for was that when you were shifting to contract manufacturing or that came before so the big shift became before that from probably early 2021 to like I don't know uh, that first so this is COVID yeah just after COVID like that kind of so 2020 COVID hit yeah, that in March 2020, I remember you thinking the business had gone, and suddenly it became really clear what you got to do. And we, and we had we had a really good year. Get your that product year. into Waitrose. Yeah, so it was. And luckily, we, luckily, we got Waitrose listing and Sainsbury's listing just before COVID hit, like two months before. So that just saved our skin basically. And uh, we had a really clear plan, and yeah, your online business took off, in my view. And then when 2021 hit in January, especially that January lockdown. Because mm. we brought everybody back in then. So we got, you know, the factories full of people. We're, you know, everybody's back in. Everybody's like pumped because we're just smashing, you know, we're smashing it all and numbers are great. We doubled the business um, despite thinking we we're going to go under cash in the bank. We had this plan at COVID like for March. We were like, as long as we exit COVID with the same cash in the bank, we're good. And we did. And so we, we thought we were just legends. And then like that January 2021 COVID lockdown hit and it just like went tits up basically just can't quite catch ourselves ever mm. making stuff like loads of people like all the costs in the business so front loaded yeah it was so yeah we basically loaded everything up going we're going to go massive and then i was like oh nobody's buying anything oh no i've got to stay at home with the kids and this is happening and 
and that went on for a long time and it kept kept like stopping and starting and and I think the more pressure that built up on probably us as a you know as a team me you know and you and also I think we all had this expectation that we were going to be better than we were than we went into it you know I thought yeah, like you'd come out stronger yeah 2019 we had this great year like it was brilliant 2019 it was really good fun the business running the business in 2019 it was really good fun 2020 we were like we got our shit together and kind of felt like an army kind of military in the trenches in the trenches and I remember going right now it's going to get mental we're going to be yeah it's going to be brilliant and it definitely wasn't that and uh and I I basically when I look back at you know what mistakes I made it's basically based on uh poor decision making so I moved all our packaging into compostable packaging because I did a load of trials and I was like right I've got to I've got to go for it because I think it's going to give us competitive advantage. It's a really positive thing to do. It's a positive thing to do, but it wrecked our product. So once it was made in the factory, you know, that seal there is all good. But once it gets out into market, somebody leaves it in the sunshine for a bit long or... And it starts to compost. Yeah, the the seal. And so Mm. everybody everybody knows what a a crispy pork scratching or crispy crisp should taste like. Oh, gosh. And we just suddenly started getting... like I remember it was end of August... So when it's quite humid and there's like rain yeah. and heat, and um, we were just getting tons and tons and tons. Sainsbury's came in with like a new order to like roll it out into 600 stores for Christmas, and we were making that. On, I remember we were making it on the Monday when I suddenly, it's by the time I'd figured out what was happening, and uh, I remember just going, I rang up Alan, my my business partner, on the Monday morning, going, "Is the, the production starting today for like you know you, you know for 600 stores Sainsbury's rollout? It's it's a huge you know for us it was a huge production." Couple of million crisps. Yes, lots. Yeah, lots and lots and lots. And um, and I remember just going, right, stop. Like, don't make it. And I would call up, call up Sainsbury's going, remember that listing that's going to be delivered in two weeks? It's not going to happen. And so we actually pulled, we, we stopped producing in that September, like late, I think it was like 22nd of September, we stopped production of everything. Because you were getting product recalled, products were coming back and complaints and stuff. Yeah, but I mean like lots. But it's the right thing to do because you don't want to fuck the brand. Yeah. I mean like... Yeah, it was literally, on the, it was, it was literally that cusp of that morning because I was like, oh man, I really need this 40 grand order. Yeah. Like everybody's staring at you. It's, I mean, we were going in with this big target called Project 1 Million that year where we were going to hit a million quid turnover and we would have hit it if we hadn't, if I hadn't done all this stuff. But I basically pulled it all and we didn't make anything from that 22nd of September to the, I think it was the 5th of November, we started production again. And presumably you had to source a new packaging. Yeah, yeah, that. yeah, going through a full R&D it wasn't, cycle. It wasn't ready, you tested, but it hadn't been used mass, so the yeah. testing didn't. I, I relate to this because I launched a skincare brand. We had the windows of Harvey Nichols, this Icelandic skincare brand, and before... Very late on, uh, one of the guys involved uh, worked out that the product had parabens in it, which at the time there was this dumbass article yeah. that parabens might cause cancer. It, it turns out parabens are the safest, most effective preservative really? known to man. Yeah, but we pat. He was like, "We cannot have enough products," so we redeveloped the product with these chemists in Iceland, and they used a really new ingredient called bio something from Germany. Yeah. Again, it looked like it'd be all right. And I never forget, we'd just gone to Harvey Nick's window and then the manufacturer rang me up, Robin, I still remember his name. And he was like, everything's got mold on it, Andy. And oh, God. And I was like, and we, so he had tubs of tubs he was going to pack. And I was yeah. like, what? I mean, I was so naive. This is 20 years ago. So I was just like, I've been there. And then you never, we never really caught up again because no. it's a fucking disaster. Yeah, you know? it's a fucking disaster. Because yeah. you don't, you, all the products off, you've wasted all your money. You've got to redevelop yeah. the product. Harvey Nixon, all, you know, all these things you're lining up. And yeah. suddenly we have to pull everything back. You know, we're trying to find some of the products seems to be lasting, but oh, it's just, I'd never go back. So I don't know but how you got out of it. It's also things like that, I think, because I remember a similar story with Innocent when their yeah. bottler collapsed. Yeah. And they're like, we've got loads of smoothies and nothing to put them in. Like, this is make or break. But if you can get through it and out the other side, right, you come out stronger. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> no, we did, yeah, but, but it also took these a long new time. products have to be very careful about it, you yeah. know. You, you know, people want to do very environmental things and that's great. But the truth is, yeah, yeah, it needs, it really needs the big boys to test it properly. It does, yeah. So, that, I mean, that's, and that's what we've now done. So all our packaging is now moving to this, this recyclable packaging. And actually, I think that's in trial for curbside recyclable now. So I think that's, and that's the way to do it. What do you think the biggest problem facing the industry as a whole is? 
I think the whole industry actually lacks proper leadership and long-term vision. Well, it's just the snack industry. Snack isn't industry, it? yeah. It doesn't have... Because I was thinking, no, you, no... you racked with the snacks or you racked with the drink? Uh, well, I'm trying to sidle up to the drinks, Both really. would be great. Right. Yeah, but actually everybody I speak to has got a... Whoever makes a decision for for me going on shelf as a snack buyer. I'm trying to sidle up to the drinks, generally. Well, yeah, but, <laughs> but the drinks industry is fun, right? It's brilliant. It's got It's just got loads going for it. And Food and that. drink. You're, you're quite yeah. fun, you know? The industry's restauranteurs. Yeah, they're really fun people. It's a fun industry. Yeah. You don't meet that many miserable... Part- oh, right, it's cold back, Pippa. Hold <laughs> no, it. No, no, no. Hold I, it. No, I, but client, I mean, client confidentiality. There, there is no kind of long-term like vision, is there? Like, even if you take that up to another level, what? You know, how, how do we produce food that people can live a good life and... It's because we've all been distracted by snacking. But hang on, you're talking <laughs> yeah. about hundreds, possibly thousands of companies that produce a huge raft yeah, yeah, of yeah, products yeah, yeah. that frankly are slightly on the other side of the fence from the whole health movement going, yeah, fuck that, have a snack. I mean, they are and they aren't. They make hummus crisps and stuff like that. But is there a trade body, you know, who's representing They are, it? They are but they're... So and we're members of those trade bodies. So there's like the Food and Drink Federation, which is probably yeah. the biggest one. But again, like is that that's run by... I don't know, Premier Foods, PepsiCo's and those guys, you know, like if I've, I remember mm. when the, the biggest time, I remember when Brexit was happening and they were just pushing this line out the whole time and they kept like saying, well, this is what we believe. Yeah, I can't, I can't, I can't remember the details now. They were anti-Brexit? They were anti-Brexit and they were, so they were pushing out this, a lot of information the whole time to us saying this is what we're doing on behalf of our members and I was like... Well, what you're actually talking about is what are big companies really bad at? Vision and innovation. I mean, you know, they're, Vision, they're, yeah, and that's they're, true. They're, they're, they're not innovative, entrepreneurial. They're big, ugly machines where it's yeah. hard to get decisions made. It's hard to get a pencil sharpener, you know, yeah. uh, you know, ordered within the system or use a different piece of software. You know, everything is clunky. Yeah. So the entrepreneurs maybe should be listening, leading a vision. Yeah, I saw, I saw something like ninety six percent of like um, businesses are SMEs. I believe it's something like I said yeah. that something the other yes, day. Yes, huge number. Oh yeah, yeah. He's, he's seven thousand seven hundred businesses with more than two hundred and fifty people and five point five million businesses. Yeah, and so that's not being represented right. And most of the decisions that are going on, most of the voices that are being heard are kind of government level. And if you think that's like, like DEFRA probably, right? If you talk about that, DEFRA probably should be the people, that, that should be the body that shapes our vision of how you feed the country as like step one. Ah, on a deep level, like with, like only we've probably done during wartime, how are we going to feed ourselves? Well, I think there's, there's feed, there's like, there's how do, yeah, one is like, how do you feed the country and how do you make sure everybody's getting fed uh, and then inflation's kept under control. And people and don't have rickets. Yeah, yeah. How, how do you? I don't know. How do we stop people getting obese? Because it seems to be in a, it seems to be like endemic kind of thing. How, and then there's loads of other ones, right? How do you make sure you have a vibrant uh, food and drink industry that allows for innovation that supports that? That I don't know. And, and all those other questions. And the people that are at the heart of those conversations are probably the people in government who've always been in those jobs and big and, business and big business. And they they definitely don't want to answer those questions. So. And a good, a good example at the moment is that, so if you think about one of the problems um, in the industry at the moment, which is by 2050, all the business, all businesses in the UK need to be um, net zero, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so by 2050. If you look at the way that the food and drink industry is like tackling that problem, they've basically got all the big, they've got all the big businesses together and they're basically going, how are we going to sort this out? How are we going to label up the products and what have you? And I've just only I've only got parties to this because I've have been having conversations. So all, all the solutions are just all about them. It's it, this the solution really right to get every business in the UK. So say ninety six percent of businesses are SMEs, and you need all of them to be net zero by twenty fifty. You have to give all those businesses a very very clear path to understand their emissions, their carbon emissions, and how you get to net zero. And that has to be a free service, right? That has to be, and it has to be government led, and it has to be. Has to be put there, and then and then and then it kind of travels down from there. At the moment, it's it's not that. I couldn't agree with you more. I find I find it astounding that everyone's banging on about net zero, and we get people on this podcast, and I'm like, okay, I'm a small business. What am I supposed to do? No, yeah. no one can give me any answers. No. Lawyers are like, oh well, the laws over here, and you know, other people are like, oh well, you know, the big people are doing. So. I, t- I think we've had a, like one or two suggestions. Like, what the fuck am I supposed so, to do? If you, if you look at the growth at the moment, you've got loads of um, there's loads of bodies coming out going. We've got this standard that we're going to get everybody to like sign up to, um, and, I, and I can't remember the different body um, the different bodies that have kind of all come together. But they are just they're the same group of people who've got 
big teams are you know, sustainable experts, basically being able to like afford to be able to do it and understand it. And that isn't the solution for the UK. That's a solution for a load of big guys basically trying to get an advantage over one another. Mm. Yeah. How they report things and and basically trying to get one up on one another. And it's that's not the solution. On this topic, I've been having really interesting conversations with like the British Standards Institute um, mm. on actually designing a kite mark for carbon labelling, right? And it's all based on British standards that allow... And the idea being that, that as a small business, it's a free service that's audited and approved by the, as a British standard where you can go and find out how, how you can calculate your broad you know, carbon emissions based on typical Yeah, step values. one, find out what your carbon emissions yeah. are. This is, and this is, and this you is, might need an this, auditor. And this is your plan. And, but if it's all based on British standards and it's audited in that way, you can do it yourself. But as long as it's free to use and access and be able to make a simple plan for you to get net zero by 2050, right? I think that's quite an exciting first, first step. The second bit is how would that how would that organisation or business fund itself? And I think you'd actually license out of that kite mark. You know, if you want to basically mm. put it on, the, on your bag to say, I use this much carbon. This is and this is my path to net zero. I'm signed up with the British Standards Institute as part of this whole thing. And you make it an easy to access, simple, cheap license. Um, so based on your turnover, so if below one million, it's free. Whatever, if you're PepsiCo, it's yeah, you know, ten thousand. But you can you can you can fund it that way. It's yeah. So you're basically saying it needs to be easier for people. It needs to be easier for those ni- that ninety six. Yeah, that ninety six percent of businesses. Yeah. Mo- most 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 decisions are not made for that ninety six percent. They're made for that four percent who basically yeah. seem to be running the show. I think yeah, you might have discovered capitalism there. Well, I, no, it's particularly. <laughs> yeah, it's, God damn it! It's particularly <laughs> bad in this country. And you could give a taxman example. The big companies get an HMRC representative to work alongside them and help them with their problems. Really? Yeah, and yeah. they're friendly and they're there because they yeah. pay lots of tax. And you're a big company, and I'm here. Whatever question you have, technical or whatever, yeah. let me help you get the resources you need. Help you make the decisions. Yeah. Everyone else. You can't ask HMRC a question. They won't give you an opinion. Yeah. They'll come and inquire into you and then they'll decide. Yeah. If you disagree with their decision, you can ask for an independent review. If they disagree with their decision, you've got to go to tribunal, which is 50 grand, 100 grand. Yeah. Lower tribunals are a waste of space because they don't know what they're talking about. You've got to take it to the higher tribunal with HMRC don't want to do it in case they get a precedent and it will cost you a fortune. This yeah. is nothing a small business can do. Yeah. So you basically live under the... Why people... And people actually think this, HMRC are the law. That yeah. There is actually a thing called the law. Yeah. And then there's like HMRC <laughs> with their manuals who interpret yeah. the law. Yeah. And it's incredible. And that's just another example of how big business is like, well, it's all right for you. What are we supposed yeah. to do? I mean, they have set up, um, and, and one of our partners here is very privileged to be one of the only 11 people in the country on it called ABBA, which is really a really? group of people, ABAB, who sit with the, effectively to represent small smaller business for tax. Sorry, yeah. I just had a vision of him dancing, dancing. to Waterloo. Sorry. But I think, so the things I've understood about climate change is that you can sign up to the government's pledge. That's step one. Yeah. It doesn't tell you what to do. Yeah. The second thing is you've got to work out yeah. what your footprint is, which is not easy. And there are tools and guessing, Expensive, but, but my, 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 Mike, our COO, and he was a scholar when we were little, one of the cleverest people I've ever met in my life. It was quite hard work for him and he worked it out Yeah, and he's an accountant too. He's yeah, a yeah. very smart man. Yeah. He said it was a lot of work when he worked it out. But the information that he's working out on, it's not the same information. If you, you, you gave me that same task to do, identical oh, it'd be task, different. it would be a different answer. Oh. And so you need, you actually need like, you need standards like, um, templates and it doesn't matter yeah. and it shouldn't matter it should be over egged right so it shouldn't matter if it's slightly wrong for each it should, yeah, it should yeah. level out across everybody but everybody should be like yeah working from the same basis same, so, yeah so we're from the same book this is equity again rather than equality is it yeah I need to draw some pictures on that <laughs> but uh, yeah I'm, I'm talking about the snack industry and I'm ta- and above that I'm talking about the food and drink industry and food and drink as a whole and I, and that, that is the big problem I see. We don't have any leadership or like vision. Well, you seem to, you've set up the Exmoor Carbon Project. Yes. What is it, first of all? The Exmoor Carbon Project, I, I, me and my wife sold part of Made for Drink and we purchased um, a track of land down on Exmoor National Park. Um, so it's a plantation on ancient woodland. So it's got large trees and so it's an ancient woodland site. And basically our objective is to, over the next 30, 40 years, is to remove that plantation and re-establish the ancient woodland that's been there for... Oh, you're saying it's an ancient woodland site and they planted fern trees or whatever. Yeah, so ancient woodland makes up 2.5% of the remaining land left in the UK. Mm. 
So fucking nothing. It's I nothing. live next. I live next to Burner Beaches. There we go. There's one. Yeah, is that ancient Midlands? I think so. Yeah. So, but it's only two and a half percent coverage. Half of the two, half of that two and a half percent was damaged after the Second World War because we needed a lot of trees planting, need a lot of wood, obviously, and so they went and took as much wood as they can, and basically, so half of those ancient woodlands are are damaged by plantation. So they all the old woodland was taken off. And the problem, now the problem with that, so if you... And you're more so like, the quick-growing trees were put quick in growing, there to... Yeah, quick-growing trees. Grow the yeah. Quick. carbon out. Yeah. And, and, it's just, and it's actually the same problem with planting trees for, you know, purely with carbon in mind. If you go and plant a huge plantation of quick-growing trees just to suck up the carbon, it will cause the same issues as you've got now with the ancient woodlands, which is basically a loss of diversity. So, mm. you and again, more than welcome to come to our woodland down in um, uh, North Devon, but... If you were to stand on the bit where the plantation is, so if you look to the left, especially come like March, April time, um, there's like, you, you can't count the number of flowers and trees and mm. everything there. If you look to the right where the plantation is, it looks, it's a bit like Mordor, you know, it's kind of, it's probably, it's probably four species you could easily wow. identify. Yeah. And, and yeah, that's, that's a problem because what an ancient woodland is, is basically, it's our link to our historic past, right? So an ancient woodland's a fish, I can't remember the day it is, it's like 1645, I think. Um, it has to be. A, it has to have been a continuous woodland there on 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 that site back until 1645, yeah. because basically that's when most of the woodland started getting cut down and stuff. And so the idea being that actually, if it's if it was on those records in 1645 as woodland, it's been permanent covered till now. That is that is most likely the native woodland and the species in in that woodland that are only found there. So in that two and a half percent of woodland that's remaining, there's only. There's only species that exist in those places. Mm. These our trees are young. I remember someone saying a 200-year-old tree. That's a young tree in reality. Yeah, like um, uh, eight trees, like 900 years old. Yeah, life cycle. There's a lot, but there are a lot. There's that one in the Great Park that's like was around when Magna Carta was signed and all that kind of thing. You stand with it, stand at it, and look at it. Yeah. It's like yeah, it's amazing. But there's a long story again behind why we why we end up starting the Exmoor Carbon Project. But that, that's its that's its main purpose. You, you see, I feel what you're saying because, I mean, I'd love to talk to you about that. We've looked at buying a wood and stuff to you yeah. know, balance up what we're doing. And, you know, it's an interesting uh, topic and it's hard to keep trees alive, it turns out. but Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've got to cut most of ours down. Oh, uh, really? Yeah, yeah, we have to, yeah. Like, got a government issue, disease, large. It's like the whole wow. country's got a problem with large. I mean, and, and we live next to the beach, Burnham Beach. I grew up, basically, we live almost in it. Burnham Beach is the Portman Estate. Well, you don't even talk to my dad, he gets red in the face because the Portman Estate, which is basically... The, Burnham Beach, they came and removed half the trees saying, oh, we have to do it for light or something. Yeah. And he just says, that's fucking bollocks is what that is. Anyway, but they've made these huge gaps. But what I like of what you're doing is you're just trying to do what we're all being told yeah. that we need to do. Yeah, yeah. And my frustration is yeah. everyone's saying, oh, we need to do these things. A business needs to do these things. And it's like, can someone give us a list and just some <laughs> yeah. basic help? Yeah. You know, yeah, you might be helping big business, but maybe there needs to be a TV advert saying these are the three steps we yeah. suggest you do. Go to this website and it will work out your carbon. Sign up to this. Then step two, you know, please, for God's sake, man. But how simple is that to do? And what, how, what leadership that shows? And I, and I definitely think we're just lacking that massively. Boom. I love what you've said. And now a quick word from our sponsor. Business Without Bullshit is brought to you by Ori Clark, straight-talking financial and legal advice since 1935. You can find us at oriclark.com. What is bullshit then in your industry and why? Calling a food bad or good is bullshit. Mm, in terms of health. Yeah, and whatever, and whatever else you want to put around it as well. Are you like an everything in moderation guy? I think that's what it has to be. Like, I don't think food was bad or good until recently. I can't imagine it was. Even processed food, even it's like processed pork, you know, pepperami. I used to love those when I was young. Pepper, but man, you sometimes you just need a pepperami, right? What's wrong with it? <laughs> man, it's a great, well, those sorts of food, you know, heavy processed meat, a yeah, grade five yeah, carcinogens or whatever. Definitely don't eat it all. Yeah, just don't eat it every day. Like, it's but mental. But so is bacon and people eat bacon continually. Yeah. But yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just don't eat it. Like, it, it's mental to think that you can eat a fry up every day and it's it's all good, but actually on a Sunday, what amazing thing, right? Because it's actually friends, what I like, do with my mum. Yeah, yeah, get friends down or whatever it is, whatever your tradition is, and have a have a fry up and make it what you want and do hash browns and everything. Just like, 
just don't eat it every day. And and actually labelling food bad or good, because if you think about, again, one of the legislations I've got at the moment is around this HFSS, high fat sugar salt, right? And it's and basically they said, um, bag of crisps like that, it's high fat sugar salt. Mm. Um, but we're going to give you a load of rules that basically then tell you if it's a good food. So you can then class it as healthy, unhealthy, right? What? If you if you look at Walker's crisps, right? And basically you weren't allowed to, so that can't be displayed on certain parts of the store because it's considered HFSS, right? But they gave you a load of rules. And so if you go now into store, they've got um, a, a Walker's cheese and onion and it's got, um, I can't remember what it says, it's like 20% mm. less salt. Yeah. And that's because that 20% less salt gets it under the, under the threshold. But my point, my point is though, Walker's cheese and like Walker's cheese and onion crisps aren't like they should never never like make up for a child's lunch at uh, lunchtime, yeah. right? That that should be uh, healthy, fre- made from fresh food. It's not good or bad. It's ignorance. It's just being a dumbass, is it? Yeah, you just don't just don't don't send your child in with a bag of crisps just for lunch. Okay, give them either get them a school lunch. What do you or feel about these stats that knock around? Because I I find them I just find st- statistics could be so dangerous. They get chucked yeah. on posters, and I think it's one in five children in London. It suggests they're going hungry. Is is missing a meal? Is what I think if you look at the stats. Yeah, but this crisis in London, you know, sort yeah. of food banks and stuff like that. But then you look at the cost of eating. Is the are they struggling to buy the right foods or cook yeah. for themselves? Do you know what I mean? Because if you buy raw ingredients, it becomes intent- much yeah, so, cheaper. So I think that goes back to the conversation we had before, really, which is like, what is the strategy for for food in the UK, yeah. right? And there's lack of leadership in that. But the the fact is, if you have a, a, a Walker's cheese and onion, which is totally delicious, um, but we know that we shouldn't eat that every day, and it's classed as unhealthy... But you give it twenty percent less salt or whatever this mm. whatever number was. And now it's healthy. And now it's healthy. That is not solving a big problem like I don't know whatever the problems they're trying to solve with it, like obesity or whatever. Right? That's not solving the issue. And so other words, and that and that is using this term bad and good in a totally and it's totally totally wrong. Because there are all these like childhood diseases from the Victorian era that are making a comeback, yeah. and it's like there must be a reason for that. Is because you know, we're not feeding our kids the right stuff. Yeah, there's some sort of narrative that these kids are eating this crap food and people are eating this crap food. So therefore, let's regulate that industry to reduce how much salt and sugar because it's they they yeah. they are designing addictive products. You know, it's this sort of narrative that's yeah. been taken. But you're basically saying can we just have a little more common sense that common, common you know, sense. It's that not, it's not, it's eating not make pig that. fat is delicious, but probably not great for you But also time. you're saying, you know, buying the raw ingredients is cheaper. It's not. Like, buying something frozen from the, the freezer aisle in the supermarket is, you know, you can get a meal or five meals a lot cheaper than you can if you buy, buy all the raw ingredients, ingredients and the meat and, the you know, all these things to make that thing. Yeah. Oh, it's almost the, the that that pro- the economy of scale of yeah. the poor. The problem that you, uh, you know, what are the examples? Chicken you've got nuggets enough, or you've whatever. Got enough money, you, you buy the whole thing, but otherwise you're left in a rental sort of world, isn't it? You yeah. know, you buy a yeah. house and you're good, but otherwise you just yeah. you, you can only afford a little bit every day, and they squeeze slowly. Yeah, so I don't, again, I don't know. I don't think any of us know what the solutions are, but I think labelling food bad and good is. Is definitely not helping. The I think issue. you're calling, in some senses, for some better narrative around. It. I think you're calling for some senses to bring together the small businesses to start having, you know, some conversations and some leadership and some ability yeah. to lobby the government. Yeah, you know, a bit yeah, like yeah, a- that's true. A- ABAB is really a group of people who are now getting access, as far as I understand it. Jeremy, shoot me later. That you know can talk to the government about small businesses issues yeah. and talk to HMRC, sorry, about small businesses issues and have a proper seat at the table with the senior board. You're almost saying, look, I know there's 5.5 million of us, so I can't quite have everyone, but you know, <laughs> within my sector, yeah, let's 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 nominate a hundred people who are up for giving the time, like yeah. you, eloquent and passionate yeah. about some of these subjects with some ideas, yeah, and then we get to go and sit with whoever the friggin' hell it is in the department of Thingamabob. Right, there we go. <laughs> 10 second quick fire round, and we really are going to do this in 10 seconds. We're going to ask you a quick series of questions, get to know you, even though we've wasted ages getting to know you. <laughs> and you have to tell us uh, some answers. You'll know the answers. Hopefully, DQ the music, and we're off. What was your first job? Uh, shellfish, um, cleaning scallop shells. Shellfish? That's yeah, an shellfish, hilarious but, answer. but cleaning the shells, yeah, in a factory. Wow, getting the prawns out. Uh, no, oh, no, that was a good job. So this is a scallop factory, and so the the good job was to get this, this the meat out, and then my job was to wash the shells. To get yeah. the shells. My God, I have so much to ask. What was your worst job? That was pretty bad. 
That sounds pretty <laughs> bad. All right, yeah. tick. Favourite subject at school? Uh, biology. Ooh, what's yeah. your special skill? I really enjoy uh, making a plan, setting a vision, and then going for it. Nice. Execute. Organised. What did you want to be when you grew up? Physiotherapist in the army. Oh my God, that's so specific. That is so specific. Yeah. <laughs> I knew this bloke in the army and he pulled his arm. <laughs> I fixed it. And I thought, this is for this me. This is my career. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we've a lot to unpack, but we don't have time. What did your parents want you to be? Physio? If you say physiotherapist in the no. army, I will shit myself. No. Anyway, accountant, lawyer, or engineer. Okay, <laughs> a professional, a proper job, yeah, proper as we job. like to say in this building. Yeah. Uh, what's your go-to karaoke song? Uh, Wonderwall. Yeah, oh. it's a cracker. Okay. I think it's a vaguely uh, singable one. Office dogs, business, or bullshit? Got to go business, right? He's asleep. Yeah, he, did fart. he did fart earlier. I have, to, I have to say, I'm pretty sure that was him. <laughs> We've had problems before realising that we don't know who it is. I thought it was the guest. Anyway. Have you ever been fired? Uh, no. No. What's your vice? I mean... Food. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you inadvertently gave him his tagline earlier when you said, fuck that, have a snack. <laughs> fuck that, have a snack. That's <laughs> damn good. Watching it right yeah, you just spell put the asterisk in, I guess. Duck that. Duck fat. Do you know fuck that? <laughs> fuck He's that not making the duck things anymore. Yeah, but I know this because I used to live with a chef and then one day, and we, we loved hip hop, and then one day he took the duck fat and swapped it around as fuck that. Anyway, I loved it. <laughs> Top five tips for founders, entrepreneurs? Ah, uh, man, you got to love it, right? So do you find something you absolutely love because um, you need to set a a clear vision of where you want to get to that gets your hair standing in the back of the neck, I always think. You're going to spend a lot of time doing it, so you might as well enjoy it, yeah, right? Yeah, you've got to love it. Yeah. It's going to be awful, so you better love it. <laughs> it's going to be terrible sometimes. <laughs> yeah, so you've got, you got to love it. You've got to set, set yourself a vision that really excites you. You've got to get it going. You've got to get started. Just do whatever you can Don't to get started. Yeah, just get started with whatever it is. Just get going. Don't move your packaging into compostable overnight, but <laughs> definitely get started as quickly as you possibly can. Uh, find out a way to keep going. And sample crisps wherever the hell you can. Yeah, and sample crisps. Get out there. And then work hard. Yeah. You just have to work hard. If you don't work hard, it doesn't happen. And if you love it, it's easy to work hard at something you love, right? Do you want to have um, 30 seconds to pitch whatever you'd like? I can reckon I can do it in two seconds. Go then. Fuck that. Have a snack. Lovely. <laughs> so there you have it. That was this week's episode of Business Without Bullshit. Thank you, D. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Andy. Thanks. Thanks, And Pippa. thank you, Romeo. And we'll be back with our quiz, Business or Bullshit, on Thursday. Until then, it's... Ciao. 